On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and, it spoke, and spoke the word of God boldly. Good morning. It is good to be with my own church. Uh, I find myself preaching a lot these days, but seldom here, and so it's good to be home. And uh, I just want to add a note to something that, uh, that Josh prayed about. He mentioned the evangelistic um, outreach that took place this past week here in the city of Richmond. Uh, people from our field personnel orientation were divided into groups and sent out, and I'm very, very grateful that many of you joined in with that. A part of our intention there is to link all of those teams with healthy local churches that will be able to do good follow-up. And just to let you know the results of that, uh, two afternoons, Tuesday and Wednesday afternoon of this week, the full gospel with a challenge to repent and believe was shared over 300 times in the city. Uh, over 50 people have expressed a desire for follow-up and 19 people professed faith in Jesus Christ for the first time. And we're very grateful for that. Obviously, a whole lot of follow-up work is going to be needed. But thank you to you as a congregation for your involvement in that. And it ties perfectly with what we're going to be talking about this morning. So before we go any further, let's pray, and then we'll dive into the text. Father, no one should presume to stand before your people and proclaim your word and without profound reliance on your spirit. Father, uh, I acknowledge my inadequacy. I also acknowledge that unless your spirit takes your word and uses it in our lives, and that nothing of eternal significance will happen here. So, Father, I pray that you would humble us all before your word. I pray that you would give us uh, not only ears to hear, but minds to understand, hearts to love, and wills to embrace what you have said here. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can tell a lot about a Christian by how he or she prays. Our prayer lives reflect a great deal about our understanding of who God is, who we are. It shows us also in the requests we make a lot about our value systems. And so I'd ask you as we look at this passage to ask yourself, what are you praying for? analyze the contents of your usual prayers. Now, hopefully, prayer is something you do regularly. It's a normal, active part of your life. And hopefully, your prayers include a healthy dose of praise and worship to God, of confession of your sin, and of thanksgiving for the good things that God has done for you. But look specifically at the requests you make of God. 
When you're at that point in your prayer, when you're asking God for things, what do you ask Him for? And the reason that's an important question is because it reflects the things that your mind and your affections are set on. They reflect what you value. And now that's assuming, of course, that you have an appropriately high view of the power of God and of his willingness and ability to answer prayer. The things you pray about indicate the things you think about and the things you want to see happen. Uh, I had a very challenging moment. This is almost 40 years ago now, when I heard a veteran missionary who had come back to the States and was reflecting on her experience in church life here in this country, who said, it seems that in our prayer meetings, we spend more time praying to keep the saints out of heaven than to get sinners in. And I think there is some justification to that charge. Now, there is nothing wrong with praying that sick people would get healed, nothing whatsoever. But if that's all we pray about, then that has a very truncated view of what God intends for his church to be about. So ask yourself, do I pray mostly or even only for my needs and the needs of others who are already saved? Or do I also, along with those things, pray fervently for the salvation of those who are still lost? So the question is, what about us? What are we praying for? Now, our passage this morning is about a prayer meeting. One of the first recorded prayer meetings in the life of the early church. Not the very first, but one of the early ones. When we, what we see the early church praying for tells us a lot about what they believed and what they valued. And the story will prove to be fairly typical in the life of the early church. They shared the gospel, they got in trouble for doing so, and they responded by praying. And as we examine this story, I want you to ask yourself two questions. Would you have gotten yourself into this situation to begin with? As you look at your life, are you the sort of person who would get in trouble because you were boldly sharing the gospel? And then at the end of the situation, what would you have instinctively prayed and asked God to do? Now, let's, let's rehearse the story. We just read the very end there, but it's obviously part of a longer narrative. And it's always important for us to consider everything in its context. So Peter and John... The two of the leaders of this band of early Christians were going to the Jewish temple in Jerusalem to pray around 3 o'clock in the afternoon. That was a normal prayer time. Uh, the temple at that time had developed a sort of uh, system or pattern or rhythm of prayer, and 3 p.m. was a normal prayer time in the life of Second Temple Judaism in the first century A.D. Uh, they came in through a certain particular place known as the Beautiful Gate. And as they did, they saw a sight they had undoubtedly seen countless times before. To see a man who had been unable to walk since he was born. He was born lame. He's now over 40 years old. His family and friends bring him every day to the temple, every day, and set him there to beg for money. Now, that makes sense in their social setting. There was no social security system, no welfare. This is how he survived, by sitting there and begging for money. And this was, frankly, a pretty good place to do that. Think about it. He's at the entrance to the temple. People are obviously spiritually minded, as it were, as they're going in. They're thinking about God, and so they're likely to be thinking about the things that God requires of us, one of which is that we love our neighbor as ourselves. And so they were, people who walked by him were probably inclined to be generous. But everybody knew him. He'd been there for years. Everyone who came to the temple was familiar with him, 
and had seen him more times than they could count. So he's sitting there, they're walking up. He sees Peter and John, and he does what he always does. He asks them for money. And here's where the story takes a turn. Because Peter and John look at him and tell him to look at them. Now, if, if you've been around beggars, and that's very common in the places I've lived overseas, it's increasingly common now on street corners here in Richmond. But if, if you've been around beggars, you're, you're aware of the fact that most people, to be honest, most of us, avoid looking at beggars. We, we just don't look at them. Begging's a very impersonal profession. So this is strange to begin with. Peter and John are clearly trying to relate personally with a guy that most people would either ignore completely or would hurriedly give money to and then just walk off as quickly as they could. Peter tells him to look at them and then says to the man one of the most famous lines in history. Um, I, I, I'm old enough, I grew up when the only Bible translation was King James and I still know it in there. Silver and gold have I none, but that which I have I give unto thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. Peter didn't just say that though. Peter said that and then reached down and grabbed the man by the hand and pulled him up. Now think about it, that could have ended very badly. If God had not responded, he could have ended up with a whole lot of dead weight on his hands. But he trusted God, God responded, he is confident in the power of God, he pulls the man to his feet and suddenly he is able to stand and walk for the first time in his life. Now he goes into the temple with Peter and John, as the saying here is, walking and leaping and praising God. This is an exciting time for him. It's incredible. It's amazing. He's never walked before in his life. And he's never walked into the temple before. And he's excited. People in the temple obviously recognize him. They have seen him for years. And they recognize him at the, as the lame beggar. They've seen every day begging at the gate. So not surprisingly, a crowd gathers. Uh, word starts spreading around, hey, you know the guy we see every day begging at the gate who can't walk, who's never walked? He's walking. And he's here right now. So the crowd gathers, and Peter seizes this as an opportunity to preach the gospel. So he starts out doing a good deed, and it leads inexorably in the mind of Peter to a chance to talk about Jesus. And by the way, when he talks about Jesus, he does it in a way that's not exactly calculated to win friends and influence people. Um, he makes it very clear to the people he's talking to, you're the ones who crucified Jesus, who is the Messiah in whose name this miracle just happened. But he preaches the gospel and challenges them to repent and believe. Well, not surprisingly, anytime you've got a crowd, it's going to make the officials nervous. And so the people who are in charge of the temple notice. And what we know about this period of history is it's a really politically sensitive time. And to be quite honest, a lot of riots started, and a lot of them started right there at the temple. They were generally riots having to do with Jewish nationalism, and they provoked the Roman authorities to crack down hard. So, of course, the authorities want to see what's going on and, if at all possible, put a stop to it. They gather to see what's happening, and it happened that the temple was controlled at the time, actually for most, much of this period, by a faction of first century Judaism known as the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees denied that there was any such thing as resurrection from the dead. So now they hear this double whammy. Peter and John are proclaiming a resurrection from the dead, 
And they are proclaiming it specifically in Jesus of Nazareth, the guy they had just recently tried to get rid of. So they're annoyed. They are not happy. They bring along the local constabulary and have Peter and John arrested and thrown in jail overnight. The next day, they're brought out and put on trial before the leadership of the nation. By the way, a leadership council that is also controlled by that very same party of the Sadducees. And so once again, on trial, Peter and John seize the opportunity to share the gospel. And again, not exactly in terms that are calculated to avoid offense. They declare that Jesus, the Messiah, that's offensive, of Nazareth, that's just offensive in general, whom they had crucified, they had crucified, whom God raised from the dead, was the one through whom the miracle had happened. And Peter concludes his his evangelistic sermon with these words, which are one of the great statements of gospel exclusivity. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Well, they're on trial. And these men are their judges. And the religious leaders notice some things about them. This is is specifically stated in our text. They notice their boldness. That's pretty obvious. What makes their boldness particularly astonishing is they noted that they were uneducated common men. These were not the valedictorian of the class. These were not college graduates. These were common laborers from a backwater province of the nation of Israel. And most significantly, though, what characterized these men the most, they noticed that they had been with Jesus. They'd been with Jesus, so even though they were ordinary and uneducated, they were very much in a position to boldly proclaim the gospel. So the leadership council was in a quandary. Uh, They're not happy with Peter and John. That's putting it mildly. But they couldn't do anything about it. An incredible miracle had happened, and everyone in town knew it. In in a society like that, word spread like wildfire. And even a city like Jerusalem would still have been much smaller than what we think of as a city. Everyone would have known what had happened. And there's no way around the facts. Everyone knew that the man had never been able to walk. Everyone knew that he was now walking and leaping and praising God. Everyone knew that Peter and John were somehow involved in this thing, and there was no way they could pretend it didn't happen. So they commanded them never to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus ever again. And Once again, Peter, inspired by God, utters one of his famous lines. Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must be the judge. It's kind of a loaded statement. But as for us, we cannot help speaking what we have seen and heard. So the leaders threaten them some more, but they have to let them go. When they're released, they gather their Christian friends, report on what has happened to them, and then go into a prayer meeting, the prayer meeting that we just read about. And they prayed that God would make them even bolder in the proclamation of the gospel. And God answers that prayer in a massive way. So, What do we gather from the story itself, from from this setting? First of all, notice that the apostles seized every opportunity to share the gospel, including opportunities that we might regard as quite inopportune. So first, they had the opportunity to do a good deed to a beggar, and they took that opportunity, but they didn't just heal the beggar and then walk quietly away. They healed the man, and when a crowd gathered... 
they articulated the gospel to those who had come to see what had happened. They spoke the gospel with words. Now, one of the statements that is kind of popular, but that I despise, absolutely hate, it's attributed to Francis of Assisi, and it goes like this. Preach the gospel and with necessary use words. My favorite retort to that came from that great source of theological depth and spiritual insight, the Babylon Bee, in which there was a, a, a mock article saying, local pastor resolves to feed the hungry at all times and when necessary to use food. That makes as much sense as the first statement does. You can't preach the gospel without words. It is words. I mean, it's about the word himself made flesh, and it involves words explaining, proclaiming, declaring what God has done through all of this. The gospel's words. A simple act of kindness is not words. So you have not witnessed if you have just witnessed by your deeds. It takes an explanation of who Jesus is and what he had done. Now, these certainly were men who wanted to do good deeds for people. But they were never content to do good deeds without explaining those deeds in terms of the good news of what God had done in Jesus Christ and without extending a challenge to the people to repent and believe. So we see in Peter and John a model that says it, it's never enough just to do good stuff for people. We have to proclaim the gospel in words with a challenge to respond. They also, though, seized the opportunity not just in that first situation, which was a very favorable one. They'd done a miracle. People were amazed. They're sort of like, you know, hot stuff in that situation. They also seized the opportunity to share the gospel when they were put on trial. Now, the intention of the trial was to silence them. Uh, the intention is to intimidating them into shutting up. The trial was designed to make them cease and desist in this proclamation about Jesus. And remember that they're on trial in front of the exact same people who not long before had put Jesus to death. So as far as they knew, they might well be on trial for their lives. But they seized that as an opportunity to share the gospel. So that means that they resolved there were two kinds of situations in which they would share the gospel. When it was convenient and when it wasn't. When it was safe and when it was dangerous. That was their habitual lifestyle. They were in the habit of talking about Jesus and salvation in his name. In fact, they say, we can't shut up. We can't not speak. So we see in the, in the apostles an example of seizing every opportunity to share the gospel. Second, we see in this situation what will prove to be a common pattern. Gospel proclamation arouses opposition. It's normal. It'll always be the case. So if you think, perhaps subconsciously, I'll do it as long as it's not going to cause problems. I'll only share the gospel as long as no one's going to get upset, then you're not going to do it at all. Because it's normal for the gospel to make people unhappy. Now, this is the first arrest of the apostles. It will not be the last. Things will get worse. Many more will follow. This time they got off kind of light. They were threatened and warned, but then released. Next time, they're going to be beaten. And next time, by the way, Peter will go beyond than just saying, whether we should obey God or you, you be the judge. And he simply says, we must obey God rather than men. It gets more difficult as time goes on until, by the end of the apostolic era, all of the apostles except for John had been martyred. 
That's how safe the gospel is. This is the normal experience of the Christian life, to expect opposition from the world, and we should expect it as well. In fact, it's interesting that Peter, who figures so prominently in this story, is the one who goes on to write the book of 1 Peter. And if you read through 1 Peter, you realize a lot of it's about the fact that it's dangerous to be a Christian and they should expect persecution and opposition. And in that letter, he actually says these words, Don't be surprised at the fiery trial that's come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. It's not strange at all. It's normal. This says to us then that if we are facing no opposition, that's what's actually weird. And we should ask ourselves why. If we are not arousing any opposition from the world at all, then we're out of step with the norm biblically and globally for the Christian life. So the apostles seized every opportunity to proclaim the gospel. The gospel aroused opposition, and that's what it normally does. And they responded by doing two things. They prayed for boldness, and then they shared the gospel even more boldly than before. So I want us to look now actually at the elements of the prayer that they prayed here. First, notice that they began by focusing on God. Their prayer reflected their theology, and it reflected the way their theology itself shaped their ministry. So they began with God, with who God is and what God has done. In fact, they began specifically with the awesome sovereign power of God. They start out by acknowledging God as the creator, as the one who made absolutely everything, as the one who simply spoke into being all that exists. And that's a good perspective to start out with. I mean, think about it. They're up against the most powerful men in their society who have just threatened them and warned them to shut up. So in that situation... Who is actually in control? Is it the religious leaders? Well, what they're saying is, no, not at all. Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Annas and Caiaphas, the chief priests and the other people on the council, thought they were in charge. They thought they were in control. But the God who made heavens and earth and everything else is a lot bigger. He's a lot more powerful and a lot more important. And by the way, he's also the God who has revealed truth, who spoke through his servant David, who reveals scripture through his Holy Spirit. And so they go from talking about how incredible God is to quoting from the Old Testament. And Psalm 2, which is quoted here, is a psalm about both the rebellion of humanity against God and the futility of that rebellion because God is king. You see, God is sovereign over history, even over the acts of his enemies. God is a greater power and a higher authority than any political party, government, or military force on earth. And he's the one who finally decides what's going to happen. So rebellion of humanity against God is futile. In fact, the greatest crime that's ever been committed in the history of the human race was the brutal murder of God himself in human flesh. God became a man and dwelt among us, and we responded by killing him. That is the worst crime that's ever happened. But that itself, in this text, they acknowledge that itself is under the sovereign power of God. And so they'll say, Herod and Pontius Pilate met with the Gentiles and the people of Israel to conspire against you 
and your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So even though they were still responsible for their own evil, God not only sovereignly superintended that to bring some good out of it, he brought the greatest good out of it. The worst crime in the history of the human race ended up producing the greatest blessing we have ever known because it is through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross that we are saved. So God showed his merciful power in accomplishing our salvation through the worst offense we have ever committed. People like the chief priests and Pontius Pilate may have thought they were the ones who killed Jesus, and they may have thought that that act was a demonstration of their control. But as a matter of fact, the disciples knew that God was completely in control, both of what they did to Jesus and of what they were doing right now to them. So, God is completely in control. And confidence in that sovereignty, the sovereignty of God over everything, is the bedrock foundation of evangelistic boldness. Let me say that again. If you remember only one thing from this morning, remember this. Confidence in the omnipotent sovereignty of God is the essential foundation of evangelistic boldness. I can share the gospel with somebody because I believe that God is sovereign. I can engage in God's mission because I believe God is sovereign. I can even work in parts of the world that are violently opposed to the gospel because I believe that God is sovereign. I can take my family to dangerous places because I believe God is sovereign. And he is sovereign in every possible way. He is sovereign over human rulers and governments who may not want me to be there. He is sovereign over the salvation of people who are dead in their sins and dead set against the gospel. He is sovereign to take dead people and make them alive in Christ. He is sovereign to break down the barriers that even now stand against people hearing the gospel, much less believing it. So it is true that people around the world are resistant to the gospel of Jesus. But guess what? So are you and I. Dead is dead. And People around the world, people who are hostile to the gospel, are no more dead than you were and I was before God made us alive. You or I were saved because God in his sovereignty, when we were running away from him, reached down and grabbed us and redeemed us and made us alive in Jesus. And he's in the business of doing that everywhere in the world. Now it takes confidence in that sovereignty to embolden us to preach the gospel even in a setting like the ones that Peter and John find themselves in here before the council of their nation. So, yeah, they were talking to the people who killed Jesus, yet they shared the gospel even with them. And, I, and if you ask why, I would say it's simply because they believe no one is outside the power of God to save. No, no one at all. Because the gospel is God's power for salvation, His Spirit accompanies the proclamation of it, and he saves sinners through it. It doesn't matter how great the opposition may be. God is going to accomplish his purpose of redeeming a people from his own, for his own possession from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And he's going to do it here in Richmond. And he's going to do it in the heart of the Muslim world. And he's going to do it everywhere because he is that kind of God and because he has that kind of power. So far from conviction that God is sovereign both in the affairs of history and in the salvation of sinners, being a deterrent to missions and evangelism, it is actually the only foundation for them. But keep this in mind. 
The sovereign power of God does not mean that he will necessarily keep bad things from happening to me. What it does do is give me confidence to know that even if bad things happen to me, they're solidly within his good purposes for me. They will ultimately turn out for my good and for his glory, even if the my good part means I get to go home to be with him in heaven. He's sovereign in all situations, and his sovereignty makes us bold to go wherever he calls us to go and to share the gospel in all situations. And if we're not bold in evangelism, in effect, we're denying what we say we believe about God, either that the gospel is not supremely valuable or God is not sufficient for whatever situation I might find myself in. So in their prayer, they begin with the sovereign power of God and they base their appeal for boldness on that power. But second, notice that they interpret what they've just gone through in the light of God's word. One thing that should be challenging to us is that they were capable of quoting scripture in prayer, which means that they were capable of quoting scripture, which means that they had memorized scripture, which is a very good thing to do. And particularly when you find yourself in situations like they were in, where you can't run off to your study and look things up, where you can't even pull out your phone and use the search app, uh, the, the search function on your YouVersion app to look something up, uh, your memory is the only tool you have at the moment, and you need the word on the spot. It's helpful to have a lot of scripture stored up in your memory. They knew the Bible well enough to quote it extensively in prayer. And they evaluated their situation in light of the scripture they knew. So humanly speaking, it looked bad. The Christian movement is new, it's young, and yet already it's experiencing persecution. Already the authorities, the same people who'd killed Jesus, are saying, you've got to shut this thing down. You may not speak or teach in the name of Jesus ever again. Humanly speaking, discouraging, but from the point of view of God's word, this was exactly what they should expect. They recognized that it was predicted in the Old Testament that people would rise up against God's anointed, against the Messiah, and this was exactly what was happening. They had a biblical perspective on opposition and suffering, and they acted and reacted accordingly based on what they knew God's word said. Now, our tendency is to evaluate things in line with the cultural standards that we've grown up with, and unfortunately, those of us, which is probably most if not all the people in this room, who have grown up in North America in particular, have grown up with a pervasively unbiblical worldview. We've grown up with the unspoken conviction that we are entitled to safety, health, comfort, and convenience. The reality is, we are entitled to hell. Full, full stop. That's what we're entitled to. God, on the other hand, has graciously gifted us with something we don't deserve, we're not entitled to, which is eternal life. Nothing can separate us from God, and we will spend eternity with him in infinite glory and joy. And we now have the privilege of representing Christ in this world, which means we have the privilege of suffering with him and for him. We get the honor of bearing reproach for his name. Now, that's a biblical perspective on what we're entitled to and what privileges we have as believers. The world teaches us the opposite, and the world's propaganda is relentless. The world is constantly bombarding us with the idea that we have a whole set of entitlements that should define the boundaries of our obedience to God. 
We need to be ruthless in our, house, in our mental house cleaning to clear that out. It's normal. It's normal to experience opposition. Be content. In fact, be happy. And Jesus said, rejoice and be glad, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So far from being a source of discouragement, it should let you know you're on track when opposition arises. Um, Catherine and I studied under a, a, a man named Christy Wilson, who in many ways was our mentor, in fact, um, who grew up as an MK in Iran and then was one of the evangelical pioneers into Afghanistan. And he used to tell us that he didn't feel confident he was in the will of God until opposition arose. That's how he knew the enemy was upset. If, if there was no opposition, then apparently Satan was not troubled at all by what he was doing. And so if everything is going great for us in a fallen world, we may need to get a little concerned and re-examine things. The biblical perspective is that opposition is normal. Don't get discouraged by it. Instead, rejoice that you have encountered worthy to suffer for the sake of his name. Third, I want you to notice that in their prayers, they left their persecutors in God's hands. Now, if I'm in that situation, I'm likely to pray, Lord, get me out of this. Stop them. If I'm feeling particularly spiritually minded, I might say, Lord, convert them and stop them. Uh, if I'm in an ornery mood, I'm likely to pray the imprecatory psalms on them, to pray something like, Lord, dash them to pieces in your righteousness and pour out your wrath on them. Now, the apostles didn't do that. They didn't say, Lord, look on their threats and punish them. They didn't say, Lord, look on their threats and protect us from them. And God may very well do one or the other of those things. On the other hand, he, he might not. But remember that Scripture nowhere promises our safety. Physically speaking, you have no promise that God will physically protect you. You've heard it said probably the safest place in the world is in the center of God's will. Eternally speaking, that is absolutely correct. Spiritually speaking, that is absolute nonsense. I mean, tell that to the apostles as they were being martyred. They were in the center of God's will, will and they were dying. We have friends who have died for the sake of the gospel. And if any of you have been out to our learning center, uh, you're aware of the fact that we have this thing called the Wall of Remembrance. It has plaques on it with the names of those who have died in the service of Christ over the last 177 years. And there are over 300 plaques on that wall. And we know quite a few of the people in the last three columns. It's not safe, humanly speaking, to follow the will of God. It's the only thing worth doing, and it's eternally safe. But physically, you may get yourself in a load of trouble. But what they're saying here is, we're leaving our persecutors in your hands. Consider their threats and make us bold. Notice what's going on, but that's all they ask regarding their persecutors themselves. What God does to their enemies is left unspoken in God's hands. Now, I think it's appropriate for us to pray for our persecutors, but what we should pray for is their salvation. I hope that when you think about people like the Taliban or Al-Qaeda, your instinct is to pray that God would save them. I prayed for Osama bin Laden's salvation to the day I heard he died. I also hope that you pray that God would convert and save the people that you get mad at in American politics. That your prayer for them is, Lord, redeem them. Lord, be merciful to them. Lord, set them free. 
Now, that doesn't mean we should never pray for protection for ourselves or others. If you keep reading in the book of Acts, you get to Acts 12. Peter's arrested. He's about to be led out to execution. And the church is praying for him fervently in the middle of the night. But it's telling that regarding themselves in this chapter here, chapter 4, the believer's instinct wasn't to pray for their own deliverance. It's a reflection of their values that their first priority lay somewhere else. What we should pray for is not what God does to them, but what, what God does in us. What God does with our persecutors, other than us asking God to be merciful to them, as Jesus did on the cross, is not our primary concern. And then fourth, what they asked for was boldness. They asked for boldness to share the gospel, whatever the consequences. They had just begun to experience the difficulties that would come their way because of their discipleship to Jesus, and they asked for boldness to share the gospel in the face of that opposition. And how can they do that? They can do it because it's a reflection of their value system. What did they value? They valued the gospel. They valued the gospel even more than their own comfort, their own convenience, even their own safety. Now, the situation did strike fear into their hearts, but it's a very different sort of fear than we might expect. What they feared was not persecution. What they feared was silence. They fear that they'll be intimidated by these threats into doing what they've been told, which is to stop preaching and teaching in Jesus' name. So they respond to this by praying, Lord, don't let this silence us. Now, they did ask for miracles, but these were not miracles that would protect or promote them. Rather, these were miracles that would display the power and character of God and promote the spread of the gospel. Their passion was for the fame of Jesus and the advance of the good news about him. The cost to them didn't matter. That was the prayer that God answered. And it's the kind of prayer he likes to answer. He answered by making them bold to proclaim the good news. And they did speak the word of God boldly. The building was shaken, they were all filled with the Spirit, and they went out and evangelized even more. That's what the Spirit does. It's interesting, if, you, if you're attentive to it, that over and over again, there's a connection in the New Testament between the power of the Holy Spirit and the proclamation of the gospel. The Holy Spirit is not given to me primarily to make me feel good. The Holy Spirit is most certainly not given to me to give me gifts that I can use to promote myself or exalt myself over other people. The Holy Spirit is given to us, I think, for three things. The Holy Spirit is given to us to remake us in the image of Jesus. That's the fruit of the Spirit. To give us power in service to the body of Christ. That's the gifts of the Spirit. And here and so many other times to give us power for proclamation of the good news of Jesus. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. That's the connection that God wants us to make. That's what happens here. They're filled with the Holy Spirit and the result is evangelistic boldness. So how do you know if someone is, in fact, filled with the Holy Spirit? I mean, you certainly know it in part by whether or not their lives are characterized by the fruit of the Spirit, but you also know it by whether or not the gospel is spilling out of them as a result of the presence of the Spirit of God inside them. So that's the story we have, and those are, I think, the applications that we should draw from it. How do we apply this personally to ourselves? Well, first of all, I've been talking about evangelism. I've been talking about the, the apostles as a model for sharing the gospel that presupposes that I'm talking to people who have embraced the gospel. 
And in a room this size, I cannot assume that everyone here is, in fact, a Christian. You can't give away what you don't have. And if you don't have the gospel, you're not going to be an evangelist. Rather, you need to be evangelized. So I want to remind you very simply what the gospel message is. The gospel message is that, in fact, there is God. And he is holy and awesome. He owns and rules everything. Every human being must give account to him. He is the judge of the universe, and he will be your judge, and he knows everything down to the most secret thoughts of your heart. The gospel gives us the bad news that all of us are sinners, that we have all rebelled against God. Now, sometimes that rebellion shows up in blatantly wicked ways. Sometimes it also shows up in respectable attempts to do good or to be good on our own apart from him. The gospel says that we have willfully gone our own way apart from God and that we therefore deserve nothing but condemnation from his hands. But the gospel is the good news that this holy God is also a merciful and gracious God who looked on our rebellion and chose to redeem people for himself by becoming one of us, becoming a man in the person of Jesus who lived the perfect life we should have lived in our place as our substitute. And then, as our substitute died the death we deserve to die for our rebellion against him. He took on himself the wrath our sins deserve, and he paid the penalty for disobedience. He exchanged his righteousness for our sin, so that our sin fell on him, and his righteousness is now offered as a free gift to everyone who will trust in him. So the challenge to everyone on earth is to repent of our rebellion against God, to turn back from going our own way, and to trust in the righteousness of Jesus alone to make us right with God, entrusting all that we are and all that we have to him completely and forever. That's the gospel message. And if you have never repented and believed in Jesus, as I have just explained it, for the sake of your own soul, I plead with you to do so now. There's a lot of people in this room who'd be more than happy to talk to you after the service is over. Please talk to one of our elders or any of the members of this church, and we would happily help you walk through that. But this is the most important decision in the universe, and all other decisions are irrelevant until this one is made. But for the people in the room, which is most of us who have embraced the gospel, I would have you note from this text that ordinary people can be effective evangelists. Don't think I can't do that. If there were two men least likely to be nominated for evangelist of the year ahead of time, it would have been Peter and John. Uh, they were ordinary, uneducated men from the backwater province of Galilee. They had thick accents. What made them different? They'd been with Jesus, and that was it. This is the only distinction in them that turned them from people you wouldn't think twice about to powerful proclaimers of the gospel of Jesus. So don't think I can't do that. Now, the reality is, of course, that you can't, but that doesn't matter. Remember Moses. This is one of my favorite stories. Moses was commanded by God to go to Pharaoh to demand that the people of Israel be set free from their slavery. Moses, not surprisingly, says, who am I that I should do that? He had a lot of reasons for saying why he shouldn't. Now, he was a wanted man, he apparently stuttered badly. Just all sorts of reasons why he was not the logical candidate. And how did God answer? Now, if God had been a modern therapist, he might have given Moses a pep talk to boost his self-esteem, reminded him of all the advantages he had 
from his upbringing in Pharaoh's courts and then told him, you got this. However, God's answer to Moses actually says nothing about Moses at all. Moses asked, who am I? God says, I'll be with you. In other words, who you are is irrelevant. I'll be with you and that's enough. And that's exactly the promise that God gave us in the Great Commission as we go about making disciples, as we go about proclaiming the gospel. He says, I'll be with you and that's enough. Ordinary people can be effective evangelists because what it takes is not in us. It's in Jesus. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, that's who he is for us. Don't look to your own inadequacy other than to let your inadequacy drive you to dependence on Christ. He has the power to use you to lead others to faith in Jesus. So, the application to, applications to us as a, as a body of believers from this text is, I think, twofold. One, look for and seize opportunities to share the gospel. It, it's unlikely to happen if you're not looking for it. Well, it might. Uh, God might force your hands in certain situations. Um, I know that uh, I had one situation where I was preaching in a church, and after it was over, a guy walked up to me and said, I want to become a Christian. Tell me how I can do it. And that's kind of the silver platter thing. That's, that's unusual. Um, we get, though, so thoroughly out of the habit of talking about Jesus that God can throw opportunities our way, and we don't even notice them. So remember, there's two kinds of opportunities, good ones and bad ones, convenient ones and inconvenient ones, safe ones and scary ones. We as a church claim to have a high view of the gospel, to believe it's central in our lives and believe in its power. We also claim to believe in its exclusivity. In other words, we believe on the clear teaching of Scripture that no one has any chance of escaping eternal judgment apart from hearing and believing the gospel. As Peter said, no other name by which we must be saved. And we believe that everyone who is outside of Christ is condemned and going to hell. We also claim a high view of the sovereignty of God. We believe he's mighty to save. But if we're not looking for and seizing opportunities to proclaim the gospel, we're belying our convictions. I would encourage you to get in the habit of looking for chances to talk about Jesus. Don't let opposition deter you from speaking. Remember, it was the normal experience of the early church, and it increasingly will be our normal experience as well as we see American society going steadily toward overt hostility to the gospel of Jesus. Don't let it stop you. One of the things, by the way, that we've noticed in persecution environments is that the fear of persecution silences people. The experience of persecution sets them free. It's people who are afraid of suffering who are most likely to stay silent. Those who have actually experienced it have crossed a line and they are bold. So, don't let opposition stop you. I would also point to the example of Peter and John as those who refused to water down the message in order to give offense. They said quite a number of things, as you've already noted, that were actually designed to push buttons, not because they wanted to push buttons, but because those things were essential to the gospel. We don't intentionally try to be offensive. We just don't allow the fear of men to stop us from saying any essential component of the message. We have to, to be clear in what we're talking, and we don't feel the need to shave off the uncomfortable bits of the gospel because we believe that God is sovereign to save. And then finally, I would say this. Pray as the apostles prayed. Pray for opportunities to talk about Jesus. It's amazing how often God answers that prayer. I would encourage you to look at your daily prayer time. And by the way, if you don't have one, get one today. Pray every day, 
God, give me the opportunity to share the gospel with someone today. Give me the alertness to recognize the opportunity when it comes along and give me the boldness to seize the opportunity. So we're asking for opportunity, for awareness of opportunity, and for boldness to seize the opportunity. Pray for individual lost people you know, for the chance to share with them and for God to open their hearts to the message. It is amazing how often God answers those prayers. Ask God to make your number one fear the fear of silence. My prayer for us as a church is that it would not be possible for someone to know a member of River City Baptist Church without hearing the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we are all very grateful for the fact that somebody shared the gospel with us. If that hadn't happened, we would have had no opportunity to repent and believe. And Father, I pray that we would be an evangelistic church. I pray that we would be a church that has a proper value system such that we value the gospel more than we value our comfort or even our safety. And I pray that we would see steadily you adding to this church those who are being saved. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.